1: I'm Ross Kemp, and this is the KempCast. In this podcast, I'm joined by guests from all walks of life who all have engaging stories to tell, whether it's about their life, their career, or their expertise. I hope that if you listen to this series, not only will you learn something about the guests, but also about the world we live in. Joining me today is Professor Jim Fraser. As an expert in forensic investigation, he's been involved in hundreds of murder investigations, as an expert witness and a cold case reviewer. His book, Murder Under the Microscope, A Personal History of Homicide, is out now. Jim, thank you uh, for joining me this afternoon. I think the obvious question, um, and in layman's terms, please, can you explain to me what a forensic scientist does and what is forensic science?
2: Sure. Um, firstly, thanks very much for the invite. It's, uh, it's it's great to meet you and it's great to kind of talk about these things. So, I will explain to you what what my role is as, as a forensic scientist. It's a it's a phrase that is kind of um, kind of fits an awful lot of roles, not not all of which I think are really scientific. So, what my job was was I worked in a a laboratory. I worked in London, I worked in Edinburgh, and then I kind of worked in similar way for Kent Police. Um, I received items from uh, detectives who were investigating uh, crimes, a whole range of crimes, everything from uh, housebreaking through to sort of thefts, armed robberies, right up to homicide and including serial, serial homicides, serial murders. Um, they, the items that these detectors would be submitting would be recovered from crime scenes or from victims or from witnesses. Um, and they would, because, because I'm a biologist, I, you know, so you get forensic chemists and forensic biologists and different, different flavors of forensic scientists. Um, I dealt mostly with crimes against the person assaults, sexual assaults, fights, um, and of course, homicide and murder and and combinations of those things, sexual homicides. Um, And so typically I would receive clothing from victims, clothing from suspects, samples from the scenes, uh, blood samples, semen samples, weapons or things that were thought to be weapons. And I would examine these things, I would essentially, the first stage of the examinations is just to open the thing out on a big white bench, clean, good light and look for things look for hairs fibers blood stains semen stains whatever the case whatever the case required but also whatever on the basis of your understanding of the case might pop it pop up and be of interest so as well as looking for things that you might expect to find you also think well this is a this kind of offense so you need to you need to be alert you need to have a kind of investigative mindset.
1: Let's talk about blood patterns, blood spatters. That's something that you seem to have specialized in over, you know, was it how many years? Forty years, <laughs>
2: yeah. More than I care to mention. <laughs> yeah, several decades.
1: <laughs> yeah, but blood blood splatters.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got yeah. So well the blood 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 pattern and analysis is is interesting, and for me, it's interesting because it's kind of quasi scientific. There is there are bits of it that are that are scientific, uh, without doubt. You know, you can you can calculate angles, you can you can predict what's going to happen with certain volumes of liquids and so on and so forth. But actually, at crime scenes, these are rarely the things that are that important. What what is important at a crime scene is. I should explain what you, what you do. So you go in and depending on how you hit someone, once they are bleeding, you, you can get certain patterns. Um, the, 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 the most dramatic one is when, you, uh, is when you kind of damage an artery because an artery will pump blood out. Whereas if you batter someone and you don't damage an artery, what happens is the blood swells out of the wound you then hit the wound again, and then the blood is sprayed back from the force of the impact. But of course, it, often it to you get both of these things. Um, so you get certain patterns associated with things like repeated battering. With uh, another very um, kind of easily recognisable one is what they call cast off when somebody swish you. If you hit someone with a hammer repeatedly, um, or any kind of what what. Uh, what pathologists call a kind of a blunt instrument, you know, and it's got a bit of length to it. When you swing it back, if it's got blood on it, it, it will throw blood if there's if there's a nearby ceiling onto the ceiling. And that gives you really quite a distinctive pattern. Now there are various other patterns, some of which are very obvious because they're day-to-day ones like contact. So if your blood is you if your hand is covered in blood and you press it against something, you'll transfer some of that blood to the surface. Now it's not usually as obvious as a a, a palm print but it it will smear. And this is the quasi-scientific bit, because what you need to do is recognize those patterns, but but those patterns are never complete patterns. They're always incomplete, they're always fragmentary. And the question that you're invariably asked by, but there's two big questions you're asked. One is, is there any blood here from anybody else? The reason you're asked that is because, of course, that can lead to identifying an offender. The second question, which is, also of interest perhaps slightly further downstream when someone is arrested is what happened here what, what was the sequence of events where was somebody attacked what happened next and and so on and so forth so when you get these patterns all around the room you're making judgments about which pattern came first which pattern came second when did because people are people who are dead are invariably on the floor, when did they get from being upright to being on the floor and so on? And then you, you, you come to some conclusions that plainly these things are subjective.
1: But There's one thing, one thing that stuck out in the book when I first read it was you, you went to um, a crime scene. Someone had been battered to death and you said, who put the body in the chair? Yeah, yeah. Who
2: moved the body? When yeah. When
1: they'd been hit was not there, it was beside the bed, right? Is that correct?
2: Yeah. I, I, that, and that was a really unusual case where, uh, you know, there's a lot of psychology evidence about this now for people who are professionals in any particular field um, that you kind of integrate all these these experiences and weak signals and rational deductions. And sometimes they just snap together. I think I said it's like putting on 3D specs in a cinema, all of a sudden that kind of pixelated, distorted picture just just comes into view. And then that, I mean, that's, that's only this has only happened to me two or three times in my career, it's really quite unusual. And also you guard against it a lot because the last thing you want to do is make a snap judgment. It's got to be really measured because everybody's gonna remember it. It's gonna be written down, it's gonna be repeated back. And a year later, you could be standing in the witness box and somebody says to you, yeah, but didn't you save this? And why have you changed your mind now? But in that case, it actually was really obvious. Because what had happened was the guy had been battered on the floor next to a bed. Um, His head had been battered. And the body had been moved and then propped up against um, a kind of white wall. There was no blood on the wall. You know, so, so he couldn't have been battered there. Now I just, I just saw this, and I, I didn't think about it. It just, it just kind of, it went in, and I just looked around, and I looked at this, and then I, as I, I said to the two guys who moved the body, and of course they hadn't, it hadn't occurred to them. They hadn't. Now, to be fair to them, it might not have occurred to them because they thought, well, Fraser's coming from the lab. He'll he'll figure out what's going on, but but yes, sometimes, very occasionally, you can make these almost instantaneous and accurate judgments. My my broader experience is that don't make judgments like that. Wait, take take your time.
1: On that subject, uh, the majority of murders you say in the book are are easy to solve. What about 15 percent that aren't easy to solve what makes them difficult to solve
2: there's something missing from the 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 kind of characteristics of those straightforward ones quickly dealing with the straightforward ones most people are killed by people they know um uh, most women are m- most men are killed by their mates most women are killed by their partners most children are killed by somebody somebody comparatively close to them so the so the killers in are in quite a close circle and the process that the, that's, that investigators, that detectives use to investigate these kind of offences, It's called trace, interview, eliminate, and it, it, it they just work their way around. So, um, so where does Fraser live? Where does he work? What are his hobbies? You know, what's his lifestyle? Who does he know? Who does he associate with? What's his internet browsing? And it's just extraordinary how quickly you can find out who's involved, who's not involved. I mean. You need to carefully cross-check it all. It's not a matter of tick, 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 tick. Because of course, the killer will not will, if you get to them quickly, will lie or they'll try and mislead you or whatever. So that's the that's the 85 to 95%. The ones that are not I don't have a I don't have a a, a really simple kind of taxonomy of these other ones, but 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 for example, what they call what the what cops will call a stranger offense. In other words, it's not someone known to the victim. That's that's one thing. A mobile offender will make it difficult. So a stranger who is also a mobile offender, um, so somebody who moves around a, a serial killer, or doesn't need to be a killer, it could be a serial rapist who moves around, um, who's not always in the same locale. Um, if the, the victim is not quickly identified, so, um, you find a body a year later and you may eventually identify them but they're not identified you've already lost a year and it might take you another 2 or 3 months to identify them uh, using different means what what these things mean apart from slowing down investigations when you can't identify someone or they go missing um, one of the things is that that kind of method is not not amenable to trace, interview, eliminate. If if the person is not in the kind of circle of the victim, how how do you start to find them? It's not impossible, of course it isn't, but it's not as straightforward as, you know, eliminate the family, eliminate the people that they work with, eliminate the people that they study with, you know, and then eventually in amongst them, people will start to say, oh, this guy looks a bit interesting. You know, he was, he was there on the night. He's driving the same colour of vehicle that was seen at, the, at this particular place that might be relevant, and so on and so forth. So these cases are, are not amenable to, or much less amenable to the standard methodology.
1: Isn't that, isn't that where, where guys like you and, and, and the science... And possibly DNA profiling come into play. That's when when the science takes over. When the normal process um, can't can't necessarily get an answer.
2: Yeah, because the question, the, the the critical question, then becomes for every potential forensic examination. So everything that's recovered from the scene or from the body of the victim, clothing, you know. Um, uh, you know, if it's a sexual offence, underclothing, samples from the immediate vicinity, weapons, anything. The the critical question in those instances, apart from the the, the background ones about what happened here is, is there anything that can lead to the identification of an offender? Because the minute you unlock that door, you are, you know, the, the whole thing kind of blossoms into play again. We've got an offender. You know, right? Where do they? We've got a name, right? Where? Do, where are they? What age are they? Where do they live? Where do they work? And then you, where? Where were they on the night? Who do they move with? What's their background? Um, have they got previous convictions? So, so yes. So, DNA fingerprints, other things that can indirectly unlock, um, sometimes shoe marks. Um, perhaps something left at a crime scene that's a bit odd, you know, like a fragment of paper with a, you know, a kind of number on it or, you know. How important
1: is, is the taking of, of critical exhibits? Uh, and how important is the process of the bagging and the tagging?
2: Well, it's, it's, it's absolutely crucial. It is, uh, uh, well, you know, you have to make a working assumption that it's crucial. Now it may well be that you know there's always exhibits taken that are never examined. You know every you know if you examine the room I'm sitting in here and something happened to you, you may go away with 200 exhibits or 200 productions as are called in Scotland, but you might only examine 20 or 30 of them. Once once you kind of get a focus and sort of think, well, most of that stuff isn't relevant. But this is this is kind of golden hour stuff. You know you think, well, I need to take it because I don't know what's going on here. I don't I don't this might become relevant. Yeah. So you, you have to make a working assumption. Firstly, do I take it or do I not take it? And that's quite legitimate. And that is a, a really important skill, a really important kind of judgment call. Am I gonna take this or not? Because there's always too much work for everybody. There's always more work than can be done.
1: So it becomes subjective.
2: Yeah, well it, it, it's it's always it's almost always subjective, but it but it's still rational. It still has to be thought through and talked about and discussed. Um, so do I take it or not? When you decide to take it, you take it properly. You can't half take it. You have to so it's it's you know using the old horrible technolo- terminology I don't like it, bagged and tagged, you know, has to be you know recorded where it is, photographed in situ picked up labeled in a bag you know recorded in a book you know or on a computer and then oh that's um the taylor case i mean unbelievably bad crime scene management i i i genuinely was shocked
1: look I, I mean
2: genuinely shocked i could i really i thought well, hold on hold on this is this is 2000 this is not 1985 these guys have gone into this crime scene, they're not wearing protective clothing. They've made they've written three statements each, and in each statement they're trying to correct mistakes they've made in previous statements. And I'm reading all these six statements, and I can't figure out where everything came from. I I just I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it's just, you know. And I said to somebody I know, like a, a retired but very experienced senior cop that I know well and work with, and I said, yeah, you know, are the men just rubbish at handling exhibits? And he, I'll never forget his answer. He said, Yeah, not uniquely bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, they're, so they're not on their own. Again, is
1: that again about the pressure of the gold now, or is that literally just bad policing?
2: Well, I think Damalola Taylor was just bad policing. Because because um this is post Stephen Lawrence, remember. You know, this is you know that they, they, they should they, they, their brains should be switched on here and they should be focused you know one of the one of the guys in the in one of the Damodola Taylor scenes described himself in his witness statement as a member of a specialist exhibits and recovery team so as far as he was concerned that was his job i mean the role of the exhibits officer or the again the productions officer in Scotland um is to have the definitive list of everything that was taken who took it when it was taken where it went next from the crime scene all the way through to the court and some of these exhibits and productions will go all over the place they you know they can go to the lab they might go from they might move all around inside the lab examined by a chemist a, a biologist photographed examined under lasers, multiple statements, multiple, moving all around, all of that is tracked. Every single bit of it is tracked. If somebody says to me in court, where did you get that from? I can tell them exactly where I got it from, um, what day I picked it up, and often what time I I got it up. I mean, I, I did a case in Scotland which doesn't feature in the book, where the whole case turned on a single sample that, the police officer said he handed to me on a certain day, and he didn't. <laughs> he he didn't do it. So
1: he said he handed it to you.
2: He wrote a statement, yeah,
1: and therefore was there was no there was no conviction.
2: What well then what happened was the next time I stood in court on that case, what happened is I walked into the High Court in Edinburgh and the Procurator Fiscal pulled me over to one side and he and said, "It's World War Three in there." and they're all arguing about where this, where this blood sample came from and who took it. And, and you've got a different date from everybody else. So he said, uh, so I said, I, I, knew, exa- I knew exactly what sample he meant. And I said, well, okay. He said, well, how do you know you took it in that day? And I just opened my case file and I said, there it's there. In my handwriting, that's the day I received it. I wrote it down. That's the day in my statement. The next time I gave evidence in that case, the police officer was in the dock. <laughs> yeah. It's the only time I've given evidence against the police officer. But he I mean he made a really bad call. I mean a really, really bad call. Because all he had to do was admit that he had he just sat on it and hadn't done anything with it. He had nothing he had that's the only thing he'd done wrong. There was nothing wrong with the sample. He just hadn't sent it to me. And rather than say he sent it a week later, he put the date he originally took it, but that wasn't the day I received it.
1: I'm going to mention something you move in the in the book. Um, tell that effing technician to get in here now.
2: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that. That was in loading and borders, Police. and I think it comes across as pretty clear that I I, I, I wasn't very happy working there.
1: Neither <laughs> was neither was this this chap happy that you were working there. No, no,
2: um, uh, and. Um, and they, and even in loading borders they weren't all like that but i you know i just i'd worked in the met when i worked in the met and don't get me wrong i mean I, you still get into arguments you still you know when I mean, you, you you can still get told what to do and all you know all sorts of stuff i mean it's a, it's a it's a it's a busy job but it can be a difficult job you know when people are sometimes very frank about what you've done or not done and what they expect from you you know and that's that's just part of the job, right? Jim, you do mention the
1: fact that, that the Met have a very high opinion of them, themselves. And I can back that up because my father was a de- murder detective for the most of the 30 years that he was in the police at
2: Met. When was that, Ross? I wonder if I'm...
1: Before your time, I think. 60, oh, really? 90, yeah, so he's, he's in his 80s now. Um, when
2: did he retire? Ninety.
1: So I went to his retirement, which was at Western Central.
2: Well, he would still be there when I was there. I left in 1989. I, I, I will look. I'll look through my casebook. I've still got my original casebook. You should look. You should have told. You should have told me before I could have looked it up.
1: Well, well here you go. maybe come back. We'll come back for episode two. Hold
0: up. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
1: was that he had his name was John Albert? His name is John Albert William Kemp. Forgive me for saying that, Dad. Um, and it was Jork, and it was one of those old leather briefcases where the flap went through the handle and it locked. And I was told <laughs> never, ever <laughs> open that briefcase. No. And like anything as a child, you're told not to do. That's yeah. you can do it. Yeah. It was always at work, and he was always at work. I never saw much of him when I was growing up. I remember the opportunity presented itself. And uh, they were in the kitchen, I was in the lounge, and there was this, you know.
2: (laughs) Go on, tell me, tell me you didn't do it.
1: I opened it up, and inside (laughs) it were very, very horrific pictures of a man who had been, I found out later, had been stamped, he'd been stamped so hard that they thought he'd been, he'd been, driven over, but actually it was the physical stamping that actually collapsed his chest and his lungs. But also he'd been left, the sunlight had come through, he'd been blown quite badly by flies. Yeah. Um, a lot of his uh, tissue had been eaten away. Um, and that, 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 those images uh, from my childhood have stayed, you know, you've obviously had to go to many post-mortems, um, you've been to many, many murder scenes. Is there one, amongst? it must be in the thousands, is there one in particular that stands out? And if there is, what is the reason for that?
2: The murder of the Russell, and attempted murder of the Russell family. Jog us through the case, please. Well, um, in July 1996, high summer, um, the... A family the russell family uh, typically walked home the the mother lynn went to pick up her two two children lynn and josie after school that day they had they were a bit later because they'd been at a swimming gala in canterbury and they walked down they walked from their school uh, essentially across fields down a down a track to this home now this this was it's, it's, it's kind of hard to get this across, but th- this was um, tourist brochure, part um, of England stuff. I mean, the cottage they lived in was called Granary Cottage. They lived in a, a little hamlet called Goodneston, which has got a mill and a duck pond. Um, it, you know, to all, to all extents and purposes, this was an idyllic, rural um, English uh, country, Um, environment. I was on my way to a meeting at police headquarters in Surrey when I got a call, I was halfway around the M25 Um, from my deputy at the time, he said yeah we need you back here, we need to get our head around what this scene is about, it's you know there's a lot of blood in it, you know there's more than one body here, Um, we don't quite know what happened, and one of the victims, amazingly, is still alive and is in intensive care, not expected to survive. So I get get straight back, and I walk up that scene. Now it's by this time, you know, it's about one or two in the afternoon. It's the temperatures in the high twenties. You know, it's bucolic. You know, there's birds twittering. There's a there's a little track. There's a kind of wooded part on one side. There's a a ripe cornfield on the other side, and I, I'm trying to find a. I'm I'm trying to find a marker here that kind of helps me calibrate this crime scene. You know what have I what I've been to, and there was none. There, there's nothing that I've been to that's like this before. And of course, uh, you know you you need to go back about a century or so to find a triple homicide that isn't a serial homicide. So it's quite an unusual event even though one person turned out to survive it and survive it. Well, so that, um, the whole, the whole environment around that the whole, the media wild about this, you know, just absolutely wild. One, uh, tabloid newspaper had hired a, um, a light aircraft to fly over the scene to try and get photographs. So they had to put up an air exclusion zone. Um, and of course, it's difficult to control because it's out in the countryside. But then the crime scene, the actual scene where things happened is tiny. I mean, I mean, I'm in quite a small room here and it's only less than half the size of this room. And there's you know, three people were killed in here and a dog.
1: Someone went in there with a hammer and attacked a mother, her two children and a dog.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And at that point, when I first arrived, we, you know, we would, you know, it's not that we were, we were, Thinking darkly about it, but you know the, the injuries, as we understood them, were that Josie was Josie would be unlikely to survive. You know, and and to be honest, to a certain extent, she survived. Fantastic, it's wonderful news. But that that didn't change what I was going to do at the crime scene. You know, there was still an incredibly serious attack and, and two dead bodies, um, plus a dog. You know, so so the two the two big questions that were kind of put to me was where. Funny enough, the ones that I'd mentioned before is, right, they don't know who this is. It's a stranger attack. You know, we've talked about that. You know, uh, they don't don't know. Literally, it's a stranger attack at that stage, but that's how it begins to pan out. Um, So is there anything here that you can identify an offender from or that can indirectly lead to identifying an offender? And the second one is, on the basis of the blood patterns, what on earth happened here? What, What went on? We can see that somebody was think somebody was tied to a tree. We can see that the bodies have been moved. Who was moved where? Where did it all start? Where did it all end? Now, I, I never expressed this opinion, but I, I was pretty sure right from the outset that I wouldn't be able to work all that out. There was just too many variables going on. There was just too many, there was more blood pools than there were bodies. Somebody, possibly more than one person had been attacked in more than one different place, you know, and you, you, I could perhaps literally have sat and in, incredibly carefully worked it all out. But, you know, the kind of the kinda logic behind it would be extraordinarily difficult to explain and probably in the end wouldn't be that important. So I just said, they've definitely been moved. They've definitely been attacked in more than one place. I can't really tell you with any great confidence exactly what order the attack took place. But then what happened is, I then found out that somebody had found more blood that outside that where the bodies were on the track. I went back the next day and this was quite a distinctive pattern, it was what I call a drip pattern. So this was either from a dripping weapon or somebody who was cut. And I also found one blood stain in the crime scene. I talked before about patterns. Well, one of the things that you spend a lot of time doing is looking for things that don't fit into the patterns. And I found one blood stain that didn't and that fit into the pattern. So I said, well, look, sample that. That could be an offender's blood, or it could be just one of the victim's blood dripping off the weapon. And of course, we didn't know what the weapon was anyway. Um, by the time we had done... Um, the it took weeks for the, the DNA testing and various stuff to unfold. But my final conclusions were that the attacks started on the track and then had moved into the little cops. That was corroborated by Josie in her statement. You know, she never wrote a statement till well over a year later, probably considerably longer than that. And through all sorts of very difficult and particular specialist means by, you know, supported by psychologists and, and two, two Kent police officers. Um, then the, another big question that was kind of really buzzing around in the inquiry was, well, why were these people attacked? The motive for this case remains very unclear, um, like all sorts of things in this case.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's the, uh, the abiding thing that comes through from, from the chapter in the book. Um I have to ask you the question, you know, Michael Stone, I correct. He was convicted for the murders. is that right?
2: Yeah, he was convicted twice.
1: Do you think there was sufficient evidence to convict him?
2: Well no, I, I don't believe there was sufficient evidence. I don't I, I mean uh, the, the only thing that kind of makes me think think back on that or kind of in any way be reluctant to say that was that he was convicted twice. you know so two juries, you know in two different two different parts of england 200 you know 150 60 miles apart different occasions but anyway, I, this is a very emotionally charged case um one of my jobs i don't know if you it, i kind it's of it's in the book but only in a little cv at the end but one of the jobs i do at the moment part-time is i, I review cases for a body called the scottish criminal cases review commission you know, there's an equivalent body in England called the Criminal Cases Review Commission. And we look at potential miscarriages of justice, you know, and these sort of things come up. And I would just, you know, if I put my hat on there, now, not not in the legal sense, because these are invariably technically, legally quite complex questions. But if I looked at that now, I would sort of think, well, let's just say that's that's unsafe. You know, I don't, is, is, is um, Stone the kind of man who could have done this yeah i mean he you know he was a he had a long criminal history he uh, he had mental health problems yeah he
1: had he had, hammering attack before. he'd
2: used a hammer attack in the past um he resembled the ether and then there's a cell confession well but then you start thinking about all the evidence that kind of then goes against that. Well, how many people resembled that? EFA, yeah, it did look like Michael Stone, but how many other people did it look like? And what about the man who was seen uh, dumping the hammer in the hedge uh, a few days afterwards, or something like that? You know, um, he, he didn't. He drove a different kind of car. He didn't drive the same. You know, he he drove a kind of what they thought was a beige Ford. So
1: going back, and and this probably will will cause distress to the Russell family you're not 100% happy with the verdict on Michael Stone
2: no I'm not and I, I I accept and I try and explain this in my book very briefly at the beginning that there is a certain kind of weight on your shoulders when you're writing about that stuff I wrote this book primarily primarily to try and understand these cases and and in the hope that other people might understand them and that and that something might be learned from them. Um, I, I, I can only imagine what it would be like to be the father of a child. I, I mean, I, I, I say I can only imagine, I wouldn't dare imagine it. You know, I just I just wouldn't go there, it's just-
1: uh, And on that subject, and you have to mention it, it because Robert Black, as you say, was the man that basically changed the way most of us behave around our children in terms of, you know, when I was growing up, there was far more freedom. You you know, I would go off on summer holidays. You know, the kids lived in the close that I lived in. We disappeared over the point called the farm woods. There was no farm, there was barely any woods, but we could be gone for six, yeah, or six yeah. hours. Yeah, absolutely. It didn't matter to my parents. No. Whereas Robert Black, uh, amongst a few others, Change the way that we we care for our children in terms of, of how we monitor their behaviour, where well, where they are, twenty
2: four seven. This was an extraordinarily big big case. I mean, we but it's so dark. I mean, I, I, I yeah. look at
1: the pictures that you must have had to look at and and looking at some of the things that he used to do
2: oh he was a horrible man
1: it, it disgusts me that a human being is
2: capable of such things yeah but they are aren't they and you know that you've been in war zones
1: absolutely i know that the, cap- the capability sadly of human beings but uh, also the fact that he he managed to um successfully elude
2: well that's the big question isn't it that, that 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 for me is is the big question i mean the thing about black um Firstly, about his predatory behaviour. I mean, uh, the world was changing in the eighties, as, as you as you know only too well, Ross. The whole business of stranger danger was coming up anyway. People were becoming much more aware of this stuff. But in my mind, I could I can I can see Black always as a kind of pivot point. That was kind of that was kind of before Black, and it was after Black. The thing that the thing that really got me about Black personally was he just did it in broad daylight. I mean, this wasn't some kind of guy operating in darkness with some kind of incredibly subtle method that you couldn't imagine. And because your children were never out at that time, they would be safe. This guy snatched a child in broad daylight in a tiny little village in the borders. And he was only caught because a local man saw mandy jones as she's called that's not a real name uh walk along one side of the van and not come out the other and he picked the phone up and called the police i mean that is an yeah, extreme... but uh, carry on though jim and who was the police <laughs> yeah. stop the yeah. vehicle? And, the, and the person who stopped the vehicle and found mandy was her father who was a police constable in london border's police it's an unbelievable um um kind of scenario but the, the, the circumstances with Black were so dark that even Black couldn't go there. But but, but again, uh, Jim, you know,
1: do you sleep all right? Do I mean, <laughs> and, I, and I say that because murder investigators have to go and see, go to the scene of the crimes, maybe more than you have. But you've been a lot, and and also, I, I people say to me, you know, and I'm not comparing myself in any way to you, but you know, when you see, I, I was in Juarez and people were getting shot. seeing a lot of people splattered all over the place awful stuff right but it was going back into the edit and going well we can't possibly show that and we can't oh god we can't show that you know i had to keep looking at the images not as much as the editor had to but that's what you have to do
2: yeah yeah i i mean I, i i'll say a couple of things the first thing is I don't think i could do it now (laughs) i think as you get older i think as you get older you you begin to realize just how fragile the world is and how fragile your world is so that's the first thing the second thing is and i'm sure this is what you were doing as well ross is that when you're doing a job it's a bit different because it gives you a focus and it gives you a purpose um and you kind of push it away to the back of your mind and you're kind of doing something. You know, you're, you're taking a photograph or you're looking at a bloodstain or you're taking a sample or you're measuring something or you're talking to somebody. Your mind's occupied. You're constantly, you're not reflecting on really and what has happened here. You're reflecting on the problem here is I need to find if there's any evidence for something that can tell anybody what happened here. And that's what you're focusing on. But interestingly enough, um, the the only time that I, I mean, I, with black, I had to kind of close my mind in places. I just sort of thought, I'm not, I'm just not going to think about this because I I can't I can't face thinking what he these things this torture kit he kept in his van. I can't. I'm not even going to try and imagine. What he did with that and, I, and I, I had some evidence of what he did do because because of the injuries to some of the victims so i'm not going to think about this i'm just not going to go there but funnily if the only time that i ever came close to passing out in relation to a crime scene was watching a video about a crime scene <laughs> but like you <laughs> i watched this and it was a case when i worked in london i was comparatively inexperienced but I'd, i had been to you know i, I wasn't doing scenes on my own I'd been to post-mortems. I'd been to a few scenes with um, kind of people who, are, who were mentoring me. And I watched this case from Sussex where a, a 17-year-old A-level student had just went crazy and killed his two siblings. And I was sitting in the lab. Well, of course, I'm sitting in the lab. I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm looking at these images and I'm thinking about what the images mean. And, at one point, I, I remember when I the, fir- the first post-mortem I went to the, the, the kind of leery old lab sergeant who, who took me, which was a nice afternoon out for him, said to me, right, the, the trick here is not to get fixated. And I don't know if this is what other people have told or not, but that's what he told me and that's what, he, that's what I did and it worked. He said, you, that's, a, that's a body on the table. It's not any particular body. Somebody's doing their job. You just need to watch it. One day you might need to examine it really close up. And at one point i started to think well oh, that's somebody's granny there that's i mean this was natural causes it wasn't a suspicious uh, case it was somebody who died in in uh, st thomas's or yeah it would be st thomas's it was um in the whatever the mortuary just across the road from horse ferry road and uh, i started to think about this as somebody's granny and then i suddenly realized that's what he told me not to do and i just stopped and it was okay you know not not pleasant but okay so I started to get fixated on this video and I, I thought, oh no, that's what you're not meant to do. So I got up. Now the labs, it's got a big lab in London and there was about 20 people all sitting around watching this video. And I got up and there was hardly anybody around and I walked out into a kind of pretty vacant part of the lab where nobody was about. And, I, and somebody walked past and immediately said to me, uh, you are right," a friend, you know, she, as well as a colleague. And she said to me, you look a bit pale. And I went. Oh, I'm Right, head down. <laughs> and it's just a classic, you know, get your head down below so that you and and I was fine in you know in thirty seconds. But it, it was the video and the, what's going on. Why why did I why did he do this? And that's you you can do that in your office, but you don't do it at the scene. Uh, and do do you do you think that you have to have a
1: fascination with the macabre to do your job? You have to have a certain personality. I mean, we know, and you, you're, you're very open about it in the book that, you know, the likes of CSI and other programmes, Asylum Witnesses, etc. they have brought new students, a new interest to your profession.
2: Without making it sound too narrow, there's a kind of range of characteristics you, you have to have. Um, and if you're either end of these, I mean, I mean, I was a trace evidence expert for for many, many years. And that, even people that I worked with sometimes said to me, um, oh my God, I don't know how you can do that. I don't know how you could sit all day and just look down a microscope picking off fibres. But, you know, I, that was it for me. But I remember saying to fingerprint experts who were left examining an entire house for fingerprints, they would be, I remember saying to them, you know, I don't know how you can do that. I don't know how even, even I couldn't do that. So you need, and also... It's not just about getting people who are, who. what's the word I'm looking for? Let's just use some kind of topical, not topical, but common sense shorthand. It's not like you're super anal about it. You have to have that to a degree. You've got to be able to flex quite a lot here, especially in court. You know, um, If a lawyer says to you, I want a yes, no answer, well, do you know what? You're not getting a yes, no answer because there isn't one.
1: What about what about the Eureka moments that you've had in your career when you've matched that that pubic hair, that fiber, that that blood, that 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 uh, you know sample of semen? Are they are they are they are they very rare?
2: These are incredibly rare. I mean, these are like half a dozen times in a in a in a career, right? So so I get called to a crime scene on a weekday afternoon. It happens to be just like. Not far from where I live, um, and I, I didn't live in the, one of the smartest bits of Edinburgh, but it was a pretty decent place to live. It was fine. It's sort of but bordering on quite a quite a well-to-do bit. And there's a there's there's two bo- there's one body in this place, uh, both um, quite elderly people, and then one of them who died later. So this is a on the face of it a double homicide, and it's a very strange crime scene. Um, they, um, when I walk in, there's all these things all wrapped up in brown paper, you know, like, um, I, don't, I didn't know it was in it, but, you know, things that are like um, six or 12 inches high and stuff like that. And and they say, well, you know, we got the, And the, the, there's this old deer who's been bound and gagged. She's in bed. And the problem was that they gagged her, presumably because she was making a lot of noise and she she's probably suffocated. I think that was the cause of death. So I get there. And she's got a blanket over her, uh, not a blanket, uh, a, a duvet with a very smooth surface, right, over her. And they're saying to me, "Well, what do you reckon?" You know, this is so. This point that it wasn't all bad at loading and borders. This was this was a lot a lot of sensible discussion here. What do you reckon? And I said, "Well, I don't know, but you know, let's. I'll I'll, I'll recover all the trace evidence from this." Well, in fact, one of the decisions I made is that I wasn't gonna try and recover trace evidence from this quite shiny duvet. So we put that to one side, they did keep it. Um, and I then said, I'm gonna, this woman's been gagged, so I'm gonna recover trace evidence from her face and neck. Um, because whoever gagged her obviously had their hands around her. This is pre-DNA times. so." So I said, oh, so okay, and then I examined the rest of the scene, and I, I don't remember a, a great deal much, but it wasn't any blood there or anything like that. So it was essentially I you know, made some notes, I, I, I taped, as they call it, using bits of cell tape. I supervised the recovery of various other bits and pieces, and then the body would go to the mortuary, the clothing would be recovered there. But I had these trace evidence samples that were taken before anything was disturbed. The body was only, they'd they found it a few hours before. So I go back to the lab and I and I thought, oh have a quick I've I've put them in plastic bags, I've sealed them, but I, you can see into them. So I stuck it under a microscope. And uh, um I looked at it and I could see samples of um, suede leather, brown suede leather on it, on the on the face and neck tapings and I thought that's interesting. So I phoned up the cop. And I said, um, uh, yeah, I've been there. I've got stuff recovered. I've, obviously, the thing about fibres is that they're not much use until you've got something for me to compare them with. So as soon as you've got something, let me know. Have you arrested anybody? And I so, said, well, we arrested this guy last night. Uh, we, we, you know, He's not looking that promising, but he's not been eliminated yet. And he's, you know, he's kind of got this bag and some stuff with him. So I said, well, what, what's he got in the bag? And they said, well, he's got all this kind of brown paper and he's got a pair of brown suede gloves. So I said, well, okay. Um, say, why don't you send the, send the gloves to me? And he said, well, why? And I said, no, just send them in because they might be interesting. And he said, well, have you found anything? I said, no, 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 no. You, you can't set these hairs running. You just can't, right? I just, just let, me, uh, let me have a look at them. So this samples came into the lab that day And I take all the, to prevent contamination, um, I take all the samples off the tapings and they're on microscope slides. So I can't possibly contaminate anything. And then I get these gloves out and I make a sample and I look at them under the microscope and they match. So, and then there's another test you can do which you take the dyes out of them and you compare the dyes and I compared the dyes and they matched.
1: Is that is that Jim? That's one hundred percent. Then that has to come from those gloves,
2: yeah. Not not quite, but it, but I won't, you know, there's a lot of other things that eventually happened. But I mean, you know, it's pretty, it's really very good evidence. Um, uh, there's another one case like it where there's a kind of real kind of transformational bit in a in a murder. Do you know what? And it was the guy, the guy that. In the flat in Edinburgh, where, where where I said who moved the body, so that that was the the, the assumed motive for that was robbery, and uh, they were looking for they were there was a guy who'd done some work for them before you know a few days before, and they were trying to trace and eliminate him. And there was various, and I I, I mean I just when you're in the lab, you're not getting you're not getting daily conversations unless there's something significant going on, you know. Um,
1: As the investigation proceeds, you're not necessarily
2: getting up you know you're not necessarily getting every single day but so about a couple of days into it i had devised this plan where the the lab technician we had trained her to examine swabs which which was fairly standard when i worked in london but it needed very clear protocols so that you didn't so that you didn't nothing went wrong because this technician wasn't trained to go into court and it would be a disaster if the poor woman ended up in court she'd you know, she's quite young. She she wasn't qualified to scientifically qualified, which but she was perfectly skilled to do this job. So uh, she kind of rushes into the lab at one moment and says, um, "I found semen on one of those swabs." I said, "Well, what, what, what case?" She said, "That that 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 murder up in in Edinburgh." I said, "Where did you find it?" She says, "It's on the oral swab." I went, "Ooh, that that's interesting." So she's terrified because you know and I said look did you follow the protocol and she said yeah yeah absolutely to the letter and I said it'd be fine right so I got the item and one of the bits of the protocol was take a little bit off the swab don't take all of it off you must leave most of it behind right so she had made notes I had all the notes that she had made and all the rest of it and um I got the item and I checked all the labelling. It was all fine and all the rest of it. I took a sample off the swab and I did it. And sure enough, I found semen. I said, "You can relax because I can now say I examined the swab and I found semen." And the fact that you found it before me doesn't matter one way or the other. So, having done all that and double checked it all, I phoned. I phoned up the incident room and I get. I got. I can't remember who I got and I said, um, yeah, I got some." Interesting findings for the SIO, and they said, Oh, he's not here right now. I'll get you the DI. And he said, I told him, I said, um, I found semen on the oral swab, and there was just, just, you know, completely velvety silence, you know, like, and, and, and it seemed to go on forever. And then he said, Are you sure? I went, Yeah, yeah, we've double checked it, we're sure. <clears throat> and uh, of course, that would transform. investigation because then what it looked like was that this person was was gay and it had been in a you know a sexual encounter that you know in terms of trace interview eliminate that's a completely different population from the guys who did his electrical work the day before although it's not impossible that the guy who did the electrical work you know
1: could have been his lover or his yeah yeah. or
2: or, or a partner yeah i mean so it's just you know but you know but the, the, the the key thing about that is you need to be ready with because yeah, no one was expecting that. That was absolutely, utterly out of the blue. And did it lead to the conviction? Did it help lead to the? Well, I, I, you know, I can't remember, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. I remember. I remember the scene, and I remember that.
1: Yeah. Look, how many? You can I, I, people might find that. Um,
2: oh well, he can't remember. How many do you think? How many murders do you think you've worked on? Oh, h- hundreds and hundreds. Not, not necessarily. I mean, I need to be clear about this. I have done. Let's say a couple of hundreds where i would have been the witness who gave evidence in court
1: but on top of that is all the other
2: on top of, on top of that in scotland they have this um procedure called corroboration so i would have been involved uh, pretty pretty closely in let's say another couple of hundred because i would have corroborated i wouldn't necessarily have gone to court but i would have been if that person went ill or retired or Something happened to them. I would have been next. So you you pay a lot of attention, and then I've reviewed lots of cases. And of course, I now work in this body called the Criminal Cases Review Commission in Scotland, and I i I'm, we're, we're looking at murders, you know, all the time. So I've you know, lots of murders.
1: Jim, Jim, can I just say, um, I think you couldn't have been um, more hospitable in terms of explaining <laughs> to the numpty that is Ross Kemp, uh, the intricacies of forensic science. And I hope if anybody else, I'm sure people will be fascinated by your book, uh, Murder Under the Microscope, and also by this podcast, because I think we can have another conversation another time.
2: Well, I hope so. And I really enjoyed it. And I, I, I really enjoyed having the opportunity to answer these questions in a you know, a slightly more nuanced way than you, than you often do in these circumstances. Um, so thank you very much. No, thank you.
1: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and the Chance of Collective production. And until the next episode, goodbye.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,